0: This program is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you like what you hear and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.
1: You're listening to Architecture Culture on Resonance 104.4 FM and DAB in London. I'm Alex Fitch and this is Resonance's monthly show looking at how architecture and the built environment are represented in culture throughout the media. In today's show, we're looking at how two different creatives are tackling the city in their work. Later in the show, artist Toby Melville-Brown will be discussing his Tower series of prints, made up of all of the notable architectural features of certain cities, and his current exhibition, The Future Was Big, which includes a selection of his invented retro book covers at the book club in London. However, to start off with, I'm talking to author Emma-Jane Unsworth about her novel Animals, which for the film adaptation, she also wrote the screenplay. I'm discussing the genesis of the book and the film with Emma, how it relates to her own life, and the process of moving the location of the book, which is Manchester, to the film, which is Dublin. In Animals, two young women who share a flat, Laura and Tyler, get drunk, take drugs fall in and out of love, and explore life in the modern city. As I'll be discussing with Emma, Animals presents a fairly utopian vision of what it's like to be a young woman in the city, as Tyler and Laura get away with the kind of fictional hijinks that are normally reserved for young men, with, thankfully for them, few consequences. To give you a flavour of the novel, here's an extract from the Talking Book, read by Chloe Massey.
2: Where the dual carriageway began... There was a series of roundabouts over which a small viaduct split the sky. At the side of the viaduct were a few outcrops of green, fast-growing trees, spiky bushes that had ensnared windswept litter, scrubby defiant grass, elevated from the street on tilting brick embankments, almost impossible to climb. Almost. I jumped and grabbed the top of the sloping wall, put my trainers flat on the bricks and slid down a little. The wall was slippy. I gripped tighter with my fingers, one foot found purchase on a cracked brick. I nipped the toe of my other trainer into a gap in the mortar, tested it with a little bounce. It would bear my weight for a few seconds while I found my next foothold. I moved my other foot, lost my balance, ended up scraping my knee and hurled myself upwards, laddering my tights and nicking my shin. At the top of the wall, I rolled onto my back and lay there, panting. Above me, leaves, just leaves. I got onto all fours and crawled under a bush, out of sight of the pavement and passing traffic. Wide, flat ivy covered the ground in a sea of tongs. Between the ivy, skeletons of sycamore seeds lay pale and brittle like moth wings. I heard footfalls and a man's low laughter. I turned onto my side like I did in bed, into the foetal position that was slowly eroding my left shoulder. I closed my eyes and listened to the tidal ebb and flow of traffic.
1: The film of your novel Animals has just come out on DVD, Blu-ray, video on demand, everything that is available these days for uh, watching movies um, and is an adaptation of your novel uh, from a few years ago. Both the film and the book obviously have the same plot of two young women, uh, you know, coming to terms with adulthood and all the temptations thereof. But the book is set in Manchester and of course the film is set in Dublin. So I thought first of all we could start um, talking about the book um, because it feels very much Uh, a love letter to Manchester. You know, there are scenes where the characters are walking through the city and giving very kind of evocative uh, and enigmatic descriptions of parts of the city Mm -hmm. and what it means to them. And I was wondering how much of that kind of comes from your own experience of being a Mancunian and and your own interest in the stories that a place has to offer.
3: Mm.
4: Yeah, it's definitely a love letter to Manchester. I love that description of it because that is my hometown. Um, And and I really wanted to capture a sense of the city, both in in the variety of wild and wonderful nights that you can have there, but also the state it was in at the time I was writing the book, it was very much in, in a state of of transformation mm. and um, and and so a flux and then the cityscape was changing and it, it fitted not only because I knew it well but because that's what was happening with the characters too and so it, it really felt like the perfect backdrop that, that was thematic um, and also something that I could write about with with knowledge and love and relish mm. about all those little, um, you know, secret nooks and crannies where, where the best adventures happen. So, so yeah, a love letter to the to the night, the night people and the nightlife of, mm. of Manchester um, in that way. So, so moving it to Dublin did feel like a huge change mm. at first because that was one of the central elements of the book for me. And I really wanted to make a film in Manchester. I, like, <laughs> no. um, I just felt, you know, Manchester needs more films making about it so mm. that aren't about the Hacienda or something to do with the Hacienda. Or so, um, so
1: Manchester doubling as Manchester. 1930s Britain in Captain America, because you know? <laughs> yeah. bits of it still look like that. You know? <laughs> totally,
4: totally. <laughs> um, so, so, yeah, that was a wrench. But it was to do largely with, it was impulse that was based on funding. Um, Mm, Of course. And, you know, these things happen, I have learned in, in filmmaking. And when I actually looked at it, I wanted it to get made more than... I wanted to keep it in Manchester. Mm. And if there was a way of doing that that still kept the heart of it true, which it did, Mm. um, with the move to Dublin, because of the people we had involved as well, who, who were so brilliant already in the whole process of adapting it, especially the director... I just trusted that it would work and that it would be okay and that that was the way that it had to go. And then, actually, when I got to know Dublin a bit better, it had all those elements that Manchester had that made it such a great setting. It was boozy, it was literary, Mm. it was radical as a city. So it was great, actually, as a a character and as a backdrop. Mm. And now that it's made and it's in Dublin, I can't think think of it happening (laughs) any other way. It's one one of the things, any creation, I think, whether it's a book or a film or a kid, whatever it is, you can't unimagine them or you mm. know once they're there as that personal thing. Mm. So now animals film could only ever, you know, <laughs> be in Dublin. And so it's very much Dublin is very much wrapped up in its soul, for me know.
1: Mm. Well I suppose in the way that's how memory works. Then whenever we recall something that happened to us in the past and we visit it in our memories the memory changes so then the next time we think of it, it's coloured by the last time we thought of it and so memories evolve over time and so if you now think of animals yeah. as being a Dublin-based story, it's because that memory, in a way, has replaced the old That's one.
4: it. It's brilliant, isn't mm. it? We're just constantly fictionalising and re-fictionalising our <laughs> histories.
1: <laughs> um Thinking about it though as kind of the experiences of uh, young women in the city, I guess that is very much universal between the two locations. Um, obviously, I wouldn't be asking you this if you'd written a novel about a farm hand joining a space adventure to rescue a princess. <laughs> but since it is about a young woman, young women in Manchester, how much of it was, if not autobiographical, at least based on experiences that you'd been told or you'd witnessed?
4: Mm. I think everything I write is semi-autobiographical.
1: Okay.
4: Um, certainly, in the, it's hard to say this without sounding pretentious, but it's the the emotions and the emotional questions mm. are always mine and always from my life and and so that that heart of the book that crooks that dilemma I suppose that the character or the characters start out with that's always mine and so I suppose real in inverted commas and true in inverted commas in that way. Um, and then some of the jokes and some of the lines I have heard, you know, mm. on, on when I'm out and about, or friends might have said them, and then I have to apologize for stealing them. <laughs> um, and so so things like that, yeah, they, they go in verbatim or sometimes with a little twist. But in terms of characters and in terms of scenes and in terms of those big things in the book, I always find that they grow away from the truth, even if they start in the truth. Mm. Because in order to, to work as something that is a form, that it just has to happen that way. Because life isn't sliced up neatly into, into you know, art forms. So, so in order to to have a structure that holds and a form that holds, it, they always have to become fiction. Mm. I found from, and I'd argue that actually, after, you know, working on a memoir at the moment, and that in in a way to shape it in a way that works as a book, mm. it has you have you know it has to be a twisting and a, and a fixing and a things like that and it's um, you know with with fiction that is 100% true mm. um, with memoir it's, it's much more of taking choosing which parts of the truth you know make that story whereas in fiction you you. The whole world is open to you, you know, you've got everything in your, in your toolbox, everything in your in your in your um, when you're playing everything, everything in the kit really that, that you can go for. So so it's great. Um, and so so, yeah, but, but I, and I suppose by the time I finished something, by the, certainly by the time it's out, it feels very far away from me and very mm. far away from the, the truth that it came from. So I've cleared emotional distance on it (laughs) so I can talk about it and and not feel as though it is me anymore or that much to do with me because I've, yeah, moved on. Mm.
1: And in some ways, it's interesting, the film perhaps even more so uh, than the book feels like a very utopian vision of what it's like to be a young woman. Maybe because there are so many stories of women or certainly so many films about women that are actually made by men. So often you get used to If there's a young woman in a story and she takes drugs, if she goes drinking, if she's in a toxic relationship with a man, those characters feel vulnerable when they're in stories written by men. You expect them to Mm. get murdered or kidnapped or whatever, Mm. while in your film they actually feel safe. Mm. Which kind of suggests that maybe, you know, the paranoia we have about violence towards women Is kind of a self fulfilling prophecy Mm -hmm. because those stories are picked out by men to confirm that those things happen. While actually, this offers a story where women can be rowdy and brash and have exciting lives, but actually, there's no danger inherent in that.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that obviously, while male violence, the threat of male violence, is Mm -hmm. a very real thing, and um, and Toxic masculinity is a problem for men and women and everyone mm. all of us. Um, I know what you mean, and I do think that it was a very it was a conscious decision on my part in the when I was originally writing the book to write a story about women rampaging around where they weren't where that, that fear wouldn't be there mm. for the reader. I think, it, you know, it's touched upon a few times in referencing other characters, but I think there was a great quote that I read, um, forgive me if you're not remembering who said it, but years ago, and i probably badly paraphrase it anyway, but it was something like the the road, the, the notion of the road and adventure, mm. and how for for men, in, for male characters, that means the, the beginning of a journey, and so often for female characters, it means the end of one. Mm. And that idea that, you know, you, you should be scared and you should this, there was only one way that this could go and I think I really wanted to write about women being fearless and going out and being fierce because the statistics are what they are but at the same time like you say about self-fulfilling prophecy you know, it, it'd be nice to think that women could just go out and have fun and not have mm. that fear um, and and you know and, and be protected and, and I just I, you know, I think the world is changing and I hope it's changing but but um, but I think that that it's important that we you know that we that we try and look critically at the way that all news and all, all statistics are presented to us. Mm. Um, and and even though there are you know there's definitely politics in what I write and in this story, um, I think that it was it was meant to be almost like a picaresque tale more than anything else because I felt I'd not seen that done about women. Mm. Where you know you've got you've got a kind of roguish you've got two roguish characters who who are rampaging <laughs> um, and and you know that and the chapters are sort of laid out that way and I think that there's, a, there's quite a lot of set pieces in the film that are laid out that way as so well it's quite episodic mm. um, so so that felt like it was quite a different thing to you know a different way to show female characters um, you know, kind of marauding around and being probably a bit terrifying to anyone who encountered them, <laughs> you know, men and women. Um, so, so yeah, I think, you know, that... And I think that the actors just really, you know, mm. played up to that. And there's lots of shots of them around the city swinging off lampposts saying things like, <laughs> playtime's over, lads. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's interesting, though, in translating it into film, their actions have less consequences in the film than they do in the novel. Because mm-hmm. uh, in the novel... Well, in in both the novel and the film, um, Tyler steals a jar of MDMA from some drug dealers. Mm. In the novel, she gets beaten up for it and Mm. her flat is ransacked, and that doesn't happen in the film. Uh, Similarly, where she ODs uh, towards the end, Mm. you get the impression that if Laura hadn't come back in the book, she would have died. Mm. While in the film she would have been covered in vomit. I think I can say that on Resonance FM yeah. <laughs> at quarter to six in the afternoon. But she probably wouldn't have died. So in a way, yeah. you kind of tone down the danger. So actually kind of adding to the sense of utopia that you can actually kind of get away with that lifestyle.
4: Yeah, I think we did in some ways. I think we did with the drugs, for sure. Um, although there is one scene, which I'm which I'm sure you'll remember, which I definitely can't talk about on the radio at <laughs> quarter to six, um, which involves drugs and sex and isn't in the book and is pretty mm. full on. Mm. Um and that I felt when I wrote that scene that I was really pushing what I could, you know, the writing to the extreme and, and probably the actors to the the extreme of what
1: yeah, they yeah. do. Well and I, I mean I watched it with my dad and he was astonished it was a fifteen. Well, you know? yeah, me too. <laughs> you
4: know and was, I'm just maybe slightly disappointed. I was like <laughs> must try harder. Um no but 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 yeah, so, but I think that the reasons for do, for toning down the consequences of the drug taking wasn't to do with it, it was um, it was a it wasn't a tonal choice. Mm. I think it was more of a plot choice because. The way that we had to squish the story mm. of the novel into the film meant that we just had to lose the way that some plot lines paid off mm. and we had to change them. So I think that, that we just didn't have room for that drug dealer sure. story to follow up. It had to just be linked to a different mm. you know, arc with, with, with the characters.
1: Mm. And it's interesting as well, I mean, obviously with the budget and also the length of the film, um, that the film is only set in the city while mm. the book takes them on trips to... Uh, the Lake District to Edinburgh to Stockholm to London, while well, the film is entirely set in Dublin. But it's interesting that that also makes it slightly more claustrophobic, and that also mimics the plot that Laura realizes that her life is claustrophobic because yeah. she surrounded herself with these toxic individuals.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's really true. It's so funny when you do a sort of a budget pass of the film <laughs> when you're kind of when you you've done many many drafts and you can yeah. you can do whatever you like, and mm. then you get to a point where you're like actually we can't afford a helicopter. We, you know, we, we, we can't afford to go to the Grand Canyon. So we're going to have to change that. I think we had to get rid of a tram, which I was very upset about. <laughs> Not really, but but, um, but we did have to get rid of a tram because at one point Tyler's driving a tram and we were like, no, we just, we just can't. I mean, the cost is ridiculous. So, and we had to make all of the venues um, more intimate. Mm. Um, so there were people sitting rooms rather than concert halls and things like that. But actually, because of the way that the director was... was the way the direction that the director was taking the film in actually, it did work. I'm not just saying that. It really did work much better for being more intimate in that way. Um, and but actually, for a lot
1: of people, that's what the city experience is like, only yes. being in small rooms, you yes. know, because yeah. of the expense, you know. Yeah, yeah. You
4: know. totally. And I think we really used Dublin, and I was really pleased about that, because when we were faced with moving the action from Manchester to Dublin, um, the director had had a choice, well, she had, she had the option of considering... Shooting in Dublin, but still making it look like Manchester, okay. you know, like they do, like yeah, they yeah. Brooklyn in Canada. So, they, <laughs> <laughs> excuse me. So, so we um, we could have just done stuff in studios in Dublin and interiors in Dublin and then spent a week, you know, doing big external shots in Manchester and then spicing it all up. Sure. But, um, but to her credit, she didn't want to do that. She wanted to use the city mm. and really use Dublin and really make it feel very local. Well, and it feels a little
1: bit disingenuous as well, otherwise, you know. Yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that, and I think she felt that, and I think she really. And she just wanted to, to, to make it a love letter to her love, love, love letter to Dublin in the same mm. way that Manchester, you know, it had been my previously been my love letter to Manchester. And that was great. You know, none of us were odds with that.
1: Mm. Adapting it as the person doing the adaptation as well from a novel to a screenplay, yeah. what was that experience like for you? I mean, it's interesting that you were talking earlier about putting dialogue in people's mouths um, and you take the opportunity on a couple of occasions to swap the person giving the dialogue so towards the end there's a bit where tyler's smoking in a bar and it's now the barman who says to her i'll do jiu-jitsu on you when previously in the novel it was her yeah and i wonder if it's when you have the chance to do a story again you like a line but you think actually it would work better coming from someone else's mouth so that must be quite a fun thing to do as a writer yeah
4: and we kind we went through the book and picked when I say we, that's the director, Sophie Hyde, and me, and then Sarah Brockle, as the producer who originally optioned the book. We sat around a table in Sarah's house in like 2015, I think, and just went through the book and picked all the nuggets that we all loved mm. the, the one liners, the jokes, things mm. like that. And so we tried to keep as many of those in to somehow, chew on them in yeah. to do whoever's mouth we could um, to keep them in there. Um, so, so yeah, but the adaptation process as a whole was the steepest learning curve of my life. <laughs> um, I've not done anything that hard since my A levels, so it's. But it, but it was a challenge I was really up for. As a, I'd always wanted to, as a novelist, I'd always wanted to try adapting my work and try writing for screen, and I was glad to be given the chance. Um, I know for some novelists, it's always a nightmare to be involved in any way, but I really, really wanted to to do it. And and it's. A, I found this was you know it's very much a team effort, very much a collaboration. I had great notes from the director from the producers from the funders who came on board they, get, they all give mm. their notes it's tons of notes from all different directions which I love as a writer because I mm. love being edited and I love getting all the notes in and then working out which ones I feel right and going through that and I'm not precious Mm. Um, the thing I found the hardest was the structure because that's the thing I always find the hardest as a writer Mm. even as a novelist I need a lot of help from editors on the structure and I sort of relish that that learning and so with this that was it was the structure but but the handy thing about screenplays about films feature length um, if they're an hour and a half or thereabouts there's a formula Mm. even if you're going to play around with that formula there is a bit of a formula and so there's a maths to it, and I can mm. sort of get my head around it a bit. Whereas novels, they meander all over the show. <laughs> yeah. Um. But but screenplays felt like they felt much more like something that I could get a handle on. Mm. Um. And I'm you know I'm sure I'm going to keep learning over and over and over again. Um. I hope as I get the chance to write more films. But but it definitely felt like it was. It, I could take an almost academic approach to it in that mm. way, and with lots of help from experienced people around me, do many many drafts. And get it, something like right. (laughs) (coughs) Excuse
1: me. Um, As we've been saying, you know, obviously the original uh, is a love letter to Manchester. When you found that it was being moved to Dublin, was the city that you were already familiar with or did you find yourself doing research so that actually you could also capture aspects of Dublin so that it's not just a backdrop but it's something that works for the characters and the film. Probably. Well, I
4: had to drink a lot of Guinness and research, <laughs> Alex, You know, it's a tough job, but um, I knew Dublin a little bit. I think I'd been... I'd not been for a while. I'd been on the headdo, and then I'd been on some kind of working trip at some point, but I'd not been that, that often, and I didn't know it well. Um, but but I got to know it really quickly. It's a lovely city to walk mm. around. It feels so European and huge and brilliant mm. in many ways, but then it feels very, very cosy, and there's lots of, like, little dark, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of, like, touring aspects to it. The colours are like, the same as Manchester in lots of ways, mm. of the sky and of the um, a lot of the architecture. So, so it, it did feel very familiar. Um, and yeah, just, you know, I got, got to, got to know it. And I spent two weeks there during the shoot, um, the shoot was just under six weeks in total. I spent two weeks, mm. um, out there just hanging, creeping around on <laughs> set, just kind of like nosing everything and mm. ogling everything and just being so just awed by this very surreal experience mm. of having something I've written, made. Mm. into into things like sets and props and real things you could touch and walk around in. It was so, so brilliantly surreal.
1: Mm. And in terms of, say, picking the locations, how much was that kind of work of collaboration between you and the director and, I guess, the uh, location scout?
4: Yeah, it was nothing to do with me. um, It was the location scout. So we we ended up being a co-production between Australia and Ireland. Mm. And so there was a, a team from Dublin, and they they knew all the all the best locations. And so I think the director had a tour around them, and she just picked the ones that she liked. And mm. and um, so one of the places where actually where Tyler's flat is, Tyler and Laura's flat, it was in this old school that was quite mm. it was crumbling. I think it was. It was ripe for restoration. I think they were going to restore it the following year or something, they'd probably making hmm. flats. But, it, but at the time, it was just this beautiful, crumbling, drafty building that was like a blank canvas. So they could set up in one of the rooms. They just set up, and but like loads of room for the cameras, loads of mm. room for like a, a sort of a, a rest area for the actors mm. and you know a teapot and stuff. So, so it was fantastic. So, so they found all these yeah, all these great locations.
1: But in a way, that's also kind of apt to what you were saying earlier that. The novel captures uh, Manchester at a certain point where it's in a period of transition. And mm. so sort the of film in a location that's just about to be renovated, I mean, that seems particularly yeah, apt.
4: perfect. You know? Perfect. So <laughs> apt. It's like we designed it.
1: <laughs> and also, I guess, Dublin, Dublin in general, you were almost heading that way um, subconsciously, giving Laura the surname Joyce to start off yeah. with. Yeah.
4: Do you know, that was the other thing about Dublin. It was so weird when I looked back at the book and I realised there's so much Irish stuff and so much <laughs> stuff in it. So, like, Yeats is mentioned lots. They're kind of obsessed with Yeats, the, the two main characters. And there's, there are lots of Yeats quotes. And then, yeah, her name is Joyce and her father's Irish. Mm. And I didn't re- realise, I didn't really remember at <laughs> first. And I, back, I was like, oh, yeah, it, was, it was always meant to be Dublin, actually. You know, mm. It was. It felt It felt nice. It felt, you know, um, serendipitous in that way.
1: Mm. The title of the book is Animals I guess Mm. because some people might say that the two lead characters act in a kind of animalistic way at times but in the film uh, you also add the kind of metaphor of urban animals Mm. that while the cat in a way is written out of the novel there is still a cat that appears in the streets of Dublin but also more particularly um, Laura sees herself reflected in an urban fox that's wandering the streets. Where did that idea come from? So
4: that was the director's idea, okay. which I loved, mm. um, and she she just thought that the fox symbolised that the the wild and the civilised and that that constant mm. exchange we all have as as human animals within us of, of you know our wild desires, and and then this you know the, the parts of ourselves that know we have to move through society, be, be civilised and interact with people and do certain things, so. So she thought that, you know, especially because we're seeing foxes more and more during the day Mm. in cities, she just thought that that was a perfect symbol for that. And yeah, it works really well. The downside is that Fleabag also used fox
3: in the second season and (laughs) that came out first
4: and we were like, no, because we were still in the edits at the moment. Everyone's, we were like, everyone's going to think we copied Fleabag now. So I just <laughs> want to say for the record, we didn't copy Fleabag. It's one of those mo- perfect moments of synchronicity because I think they probably used it as a similar symbol, which is really interesting. Because mm. um, I think there's probably quite a lot of similarities between mm. the character of Fleabag and, and the two women in my film.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean, particularly having uh, Tyler's avatar for one of a better word or demon, uh, <laughs> thinking of literary um, stories, um, <laughs> Uh, as a cat you know cats being disloyal and just going where they want for oh, food if someone will look after them they'll stick that completely. way while yeah, foxes so are fickle. yeah exactly while foxes perhaps more have a sense of safety, you yes, know.
4: Yes, yeah, and territory, and yeah. maybe a bit more like dogs and loyal, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, so we've been talking about animals because the, the film has just been released uh, for viewing in the home. Uh, next month, uh, your new novel, Adults, comes out. It does. What's that about?
4: So that's about um, a woman who is in her mid-30s and who is spinning out after a major life trauma and um, she's spinning out mainly online in various ways um, mm. because I think that that can get so toxic when you're in a vulnerable, fragile place and I think it's 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 quite specific often in the way that women spin out on there too and that's what I really wanted to look at mm. um, and then her mother turns up after they've not really been close for very long, a single, single mum, so they were very close when she was growing up and they haven't been for, for a while. So, they're not not estranged but they have not particularly close and her mother turns up when she's in the the way under the guise of of helping of coming to to her daughter's rescue but actually it turns out she's got a bit of an agenda as well going on so mother-daughter relationships I'm looking at in that and then also just being in your mid-30s and how different that is often um, biologically for many Mm. women than being in your late 20s early 30s like the characters in animals Mm. um because I suppose if animals is the story of one woman's self liberation, then adults asks the question of you know, what happens if you if you are in every way as free as any modern woman can be um in our society but then biology still comes in and blindsides mm. you in your in your mid to late 30s and you start getting called crazy and all those okay. terrible things so so yeah so so it's it's like that but i hope it's it's a comedy i trying to <laughs> try to write it as well um, again a, a dark comedy mm. um that asks some some gritty questions i hope
1: okay interesting and where's it set
4: it's set in London, but she's ah. a Mancunian, so it's okay. like a Manc- fish out of water in that way. She's a Mancunian in London, and her mum comes down from Lancashire, and her mum's very Lancashire. Um, so, that so just felt like it was, you know, comedic. And then that's what I know as well, because I did live in London for a little while, and found it quite strange when people in pubs couldn't understand what I was asking. Someone <laughs> asked for nuts, went, <laughs> nuts, nuts, and they're like, "Oh, nuts!" <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, um, so, so yeah. So, so that's um, yeah, that's what that one's about. And I'm adapting that one. For TV. Oh. So um so that felt more like a TV story that you know that okay. could, could go for a series because of the characters, because suppose it's not as neat neat and arc as animals
1: in lots of ways. Interesting. Okay. Obviously, you know, you had formative experiences in Manchester, but like you said, uh you've lived in London um and uh now you live in Brighton. Where, for perhaps eagle-eared listeners, they might be able to tell how wonderful the weather is at this time <laughs> of year. <laughs> it's blowing a gale outside. Um, do you kind of pick out different experiences in cities as being inspirational? I mean, I guess every city has its own kind of flavour, mm. and maybe as a writer, you have more kind of acuity in picking those things up.
4: Yeah, I think that's really true, and I think it's 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 interesting to me and. And maybe crucial that that I feel a bit rootless, even though you know I, I think Manchester is my childhood home, and I love it very much. Um Yeah, I, I live in Brighton now, and and I and I go to London a lot, and I love all of these cities, and I don't feel as though. I belong to any of them or any of them belong to me at the same time. And mm. I think that's not a bad position for a writer really to be in. Um my favourite way to write is to be in a motorhome going round the Scottish <laughs> Islands. And that's something I used to do um a lot. And now I have a son so I don't want to be away too much. But but yeah, I used to I used to go round the Scottish Highlands in it because it was like having your desk on wheels nice and I used to get so much done especially because <laughs> there's no wi-fi it's fantastic so I used to do that um because that that's sort of just being constantly moving that just that just mm. helps it that helps me be creative I think
1: okay interesting and it, it's funny I mean because obviously then the view out the window would be different every day totally. so it's a little bit <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> different inspiration every yeah, time yeah
2: definitely.
1: Excellent. Cool. Well, um, I thought the film was terrific and, and the novel is too. Uh, and so, yeah, looking forward to, to adults and all your future projects. Thank you very much.
4: Thanks so much, Alex.
1: Animals, the novel, is available to buy from all good bookshops. The Talking Book, read by Chloe Massey, is available on Audible and to buy on CD. And the film Animals, directed by Sophie Hyde and starring Holiday Granger and Elia Shawcat is available now on Blu-ray, DVD and video on demand. Emma Jane Unsworth's website can be found at emmajaneunsworth.com and the Animals Movie website can be found at animalsfilm.co.uk Emma's new novel Adults is published in the UK in March and to launch the book she'll be in conversation with Alexandra Heminsley at Waterstones in Brighton at 7.30pm on the 28th of January. And you can find more information about this event by going to waterstones.com. So to conclude the first half of today's show, to give you a flavour of the film, here's an extract from the trailer.
5: Girls are tied to beds for two reasons. Sex. And exorcisms. So which was it with you? (laughs)
2: What do you use for bitters?
4: up paracetamol.
2: Nice! What do you say your name was again? Chicken sandwich. That's a beautiful
1: name. <laughs> so, what do you do?
2: I'm a writer. A I, I, I'm trying to nail the work life balance. Sooner or later, the party has to end. Why? Tyler, <laughs> this is Jim.
5: Make way. My friend's lover is the
2: man of the hour. Does he play the piano like he's making love to a beautiful woman? You know, none of this changes our friendship.
5: He thinks we savages. We are savages.
1: <laughs> in the second half of today's programme, which looks at how various creative writers and artists represent the city in their work, I'm talking to artist Toby Melville Brown. Toby has been creating fantastical images of architecture since the beginning of his career, with a series of prints called Towers made up of fantastical skyscrapers which combine notable architectural features from various cities. I'll be talking to Toby about these and his most recent exhibition, The Future Was Big, which is currently on display at the book club London on Leonard Street in Hoxton. The Future Was Big includes a series of fictional sci-fi book covers created by Toby which invoke the nostalgic idea of sci-fi futures that never took place but that we have a fond memory of because of the way that they informed culture in the 1960s, 70s and 80s. So I guess one of the things that first brought your work into the public eye was a feature on your Tower series in Dezean in 2013. Um, And your tower series, for people who don't know it, are a series of kind of fantastical line drawings, um, imagining different uh, new buildings in iconic cities around the world, with each building kind of responding to existing architecture from that location and kind of like mixing it up in two more fantastical forms. Um, How did those drawings come about?
0: was studying transportation design ah. at Northumbria University and I just had a lot of time on my hands and I I think I I just thought I like the format of the portrait. Um, I don't draw figures as such but I wanted to have that like a, almost a sense of a character in the portrait format but using architectural details which i was really interested in so and i've always loved skyscrapers since a very young age so it was it was about arranging those details in a vertical arrangement um and i think it just kind of went from there and then the response i got from my lecturers and my peers was um was positive so i was like i I just carried on there were two tower series. There's tower series one, which was um, had less of a format. Really, I was just kind of picking ideas out of the air. Mm. Um, the the first one I ever did was a sort of um, vertically arranged power plant, which imagined a world in which um, we've got you know huge overpopulation. Mm. Um, every every acre is being built on so structures which um uh, in our time have the luxury of arranging themselves on a large plane a large space wouldn't have that luxury and so would have to build vertically mm. and so this was a nuclear power plant that was um that was built in the format of a skyscraper.
5: <laughs> uh,
0: and then there was other variants. So there was a imagining this built up area and the least hospitable land and how in certain occasions the desire to live in a certain area is greater than um, or, or is despite the fact that it's so inhospitable, you know, kind of um, towns built on precarious mountain sides. Mm. Um, So imagine the extremity of that and this, I guess it's this rock formation that's almost in the shape of a D, just an abstract formation and and there's a city built on it. And that took inspiration from, say, the favelas in South America. Um, And then the second tower series was based on the fact that, you know, people responded well to the things that they recognised be air, the, uh, the a spire, or an archway, and they, you know, they could say, "Oh, I recognise that from this building or this location." And so, I felt myself that I don't enjoy just reproducing architectural monuments. I find that a bit boring, <laughs> and I lose interest. And in, in my drawings reflect that when I'm not interested in them. Mm. Um, so this was doing, um, this was compiling those. Uh, structures around a theme, so um, different cities. So I had a London Tower, a Tokyo Tower, mm. a Paris Tower and a San Francisco Tower. And just just on city, based on the fact that I've been to these cities and they inspired me. Mm. Um, and I've since kind of tackled a few other cities. Interestingly, New York seems to be the one that kind of... Is the biggest challenge <laughs> and I thought it would be you know the most exciting and the most interesting but I think it's the challenge because what the the most interesting aspect of those buildings is always at, at the very top and so how do you arrange all these monuments when they're all vying to be the best
3: yeah you know, another one was Las Vegas um I'd I come back from
0: Las Vegas, and I thought, man, I've got to do a drawing that um, a drawing based on Las Vegas, uh, and a similar problem to New York, really, because there was so much, so much of the architecture that's vying for attention, mm. um, and there's no real hierarchy between what's number one and, and how those would fit together. And I realised with Las Vegas. It's only um, uniformity was the fact that it's based around this one road. I mean, there, there, are, there are like kind of other districts, but it's largely based on the strip. Mm. Um, and so I created a, a drawing that looks down the strip as it, as it goes off into the distance and then arranged all the buildings around that. There's a fair bit of creative license as to how I did that. I was pretty happy with the result and
3: compared to the other ones, I thought this has to be set at night. So it's, mm. um, it's a print that I did on
0: black uncoated G with, um, with a wizard printer who I always use called Vaughn, tin dogs, um, shout out to him. He's a Brighton based printer. Mm. Um, and he just really brought out those fluoride tones, of las vegas at night and yeah so that's um that's kind of a um a quite um (laughs) the evolution of the tower series for
1: you Mm. well and also i guess working on european cities in a way it gives you a chance to realize the roads not taken because all sorts of architects have had grand plans for paris and london and other cities throughout the 20th century that were never realized and so it gives you a chance to come up with these fantastical constructions that don't exist. But when you tackle an American city, it feels like they're actually already making absurdist buildings. Um, I was was reading recently about a recent construction on the west side of New York uh, by the river Which seems to have all sorts of staircases that literally go nowhere, you know, (laughs) where people are building just, yeah, where people are building just for the sake of conspicuous wealth, rather than actually for the building to have any real purpose.
0: Yeah, yeah, well, there's, yeah, it's it's that monument by Thomas Heatherwick, I think you're referring
3: to, Mm. which is, I guess what they're, they're creating is a
0: justification for this, quote unquote, public space Hmm.
5: which isn't really public but then they've got this monument
3: that allows people to wander Mm. Um, yeah there's a, there's a lot to, to,
0: to say about Hudson Yards I'm not really a fan <laughs> but I am actually a fan of that staircase because um, it's really good for hide and seek
1: <laughs> <laughs> well at least it's, it's playful but yeah. thinking of those kind of unrealized plans for European cities it kind of strikes me that when I see even these early tower drawings before thinking of your more recent work, that they also show an interest in kind of science fiction and even older forms of science fiction, whether it's kind of Victorian sci-fi or what we might think of as steampunk in um, recent years. Yeah, I guess there is a fair bit of that. I think my my strongest inspirations from a young age were,
0: you know, things that I had right in front of me, for example, Thunderbirds Hmm. was a big thing, Lego... Star Wars growing older, I kind of um, was playing computer games like Sim City
5: mm.
0: and Command and Conquer and I think it's probably Command and Conquer and Red Alert. I'm not sure if you're familiar with those games, but they're kind of mid to late nineties strategy mm. games, a little bit like Sim City, but allow you to wage silly wars. Um, where you play, I think, either the the Americans who are blue and righteous versus the Russians who have all sorts of nefarious um, technologies. And it was the, um, I think it was the the aesthetic of um, the Russian side when I used to play
3: as that team that really influenced my interest in Russia, Mm. um,
0: which is something that... Has gone is a is a thread that's gone through my work and, and features in a couple of the titles from my latest exhibition. Mm. But uh, yeah, that's an interest, an aesthetic that um, gets me going certainly.
1: Mm. When you were doing the tower series, obviously, they were successful in the sense that you were selling prints of them and you know starting to make a career and a name for yourself as an illustrator. But as you yeah. started them as part of what might be seen as a practical degree, were there any concerns at the university that you were coming up with fantastical designs that maybe couldn't be realised in real life?
0: Yeah, I don't think they knew (laughs) what I was doing. I didn't really know what I was doing. I was completely just following my nose. Mm.
3: I did have one, actually a couple of lecturers, that despite, you know, them scratching their head and thinking
0: what are you going to do with this? They were certainly very enthusiastic and supportive of my work, one being Freddie Yorner, who was a graduate of the RCA and then was a lecturer at Northumber University and really kind of mentored me and supported me from my graduation and then when I came down to, to London and still is and has become a good friend. But certainly, yeah, a lot of the lecturers were saying we can't really mark you for this <laughs> we can't uh, we you know that this is what and i think i probably had i had a bit more confidence in myself and where my work could exist in um a commercial space or an academic space i might have um challenged them on that but
1: mm. uh, i just instead just got back to my drawing yeah um,
0: yeah, <laughs> but um, I I think my marks, you know, certainly did reflect that crisis of of confidence and direction. But um, yeah, I w- I wasn't overly fast mm. either way, to be honest.
1: <laughs> Although thinking of your work in terms. Of it having kind of a diagrammatical quality that does kind of give information about the location that you're depicting looking at prints like las vegas or tower over trump or china tower those do have more of a sense of three-dimensional space stretching out into the landscape so did that show an interest in topography developing in your work as well as structures
0: yeah, what well, I think it was when I was, I mean I, I, always to a point I was I was imagining these spaces from a more three-dimensional perspective. Mm. And the line drawings that I was doing with a pen to me were just the most natural and straightforward way that I could communicate what was going on in my head. But as I you know, continued doing my practice. I wanted to include other elements such as colour, perspective, etc. And so, yeah, I, I, I do often go to sleep and explore those towers. In fact, I'm actually returning currently to the China Tower mm. and I'm imagining what world that lives in mm. and creating rival towers represent the ethos and um, aesthetics of different um, societies
1: and then i guess another kind of aspect of working with the landscape is um, a print of yours like brutalist tree which imagines kind of like the ultimate tree house which goes Mm. up several stories Mm. so that's presenting a different kind of challenge you know that if you are imagining these new utopian buildings that we might live in and in the future how can we incorporate them in and amongst nature as well
0: yeah the the brutalist tree started um with a drawing that i did for my nephew and that (laughs) was really early on um and i think i mean i I always love tree houses and i know that other people love tree houses but as an illustrator you know this is obviously quite an indulgent (laughs) brief but the question is how you merge aesthetic of um, the aesthetic and format of structures with tree houses uh, to their most bombastic extent Um, and it's kind of difficult Um, I think because I see trees as um, you know they're not top heavy they're bottom heavy um, and they kind of um, but
3: they are visually top heavy do you know what I mean? Because yeah. they've got all these leaves and these branches at the top, but then they've got a heavy
0: root, a heavy trunk at the bottom. And then when you draw that, and then add, um, then add a building at the top. The problem is that you have a, a structure that looks incredibly top-heavy. Mm. Um, and although, you know, my drawings are recognised as impossible architecture. You don't want people to look at them and think that's gonna <laughs> topple over. Or you know, you don't want you don't wanna make people un when when they look at your images. So mm. tree houses are a tricky one.
5: <laughs> In fact, last
0: year, no, late two thousand seventeen, I set myself the challenge of drawing um, no, late two thousand and eighteen. I set myself the challenge of drawing a tree house every day. Huh for the month of November mm. and that is um that was fun and it was a lot more of a it was much more of a sketch project um than some of my more detailed works but it was it was a, it was a fun
1: challenge and then thinking of a different kind of mixture of architecture and natural forms, a print like Look Into My Eyes seems to form a bridge, no pun intended, between your kind of detailed line work and then the homages to fantasy art that are in your current exhibition. That it has this kind of aspect of a ruined civilization. Adapting kind of the sculpture of a giant into a habitat, as sort of a utopia becomes a dystopia, or vice versa.
0: Yeah, that one. That's interesting. What you say, or or what you took from that image. It was actually about multiple sclerosis. It was an oh, early commission I had, hmm. and the image I'll just explain is the head um, with a.
3: Uh, where you would usually see um, arteries and neurons etc
0: that it it's that route goes along a bridge and then but the bridge is under construction or is damaged because there's scaffolding around it and then and then it goes to the hand Uh, I'm just explaining this for listeners (laughs) because it is quite a um, yeah it is quite a complex image but the metaphor that I was trying to communicate was that of multiple sclerosis. Uh. And there's a, well, a sort of image of a nuclear power plant inside this head. I know this
3: is probably sounding nuts <laughs> for anyone that hasn't seen the image, but um,
0: there's a nuclear power plant inside the head, and the power lines that would be going off to the city are damaged, uh, as you as you have with multiple sclerosis. It gets a really strong reaction from people. I think people like the mixture of the natural form of the head with the perspective of the finger coming towards the the point of the viewer. Mm. And I think what I take from that
5: is the juxtaposition between the huge natural form, so things like hands and heads and necks, muscles
0: mm. um, mixed with roads and scaffolding but the former being much larger than the latter so you know you're you're then questioning what this world is and i think um where i've seen that recently that kind of mixture of scale and huge structures of people is in blade runner mm. 2049 yeah when he's in the ruins of Las Vegas, mm. and it's got the large, high-heeled shoe and the the large hand. I think I love that.
1: Mm. I love
0: that visual. I love statues.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting because
0: statues and what they mean.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, that that imagery in in Blade Runner twenty forty nine, the imagery that you have in the future is big, and even the imagery in that print, even though I didn't know its original source all seem to hark Mm. back to kind of older forms of fantasy art like um, paintings by Roger Dean and his contemporaries. So even if that wasn't your intent with that print maybe it was something that was still filtering through your subconscious.
0: Yeah completely. I think certainly with my latest exhibition which I'll just hit I'll, I'll just kind of say a little bit about I didn't want to say too explicitly about those inspirations such as Roger Dean and Chris Mm. Foss and people like that, but they're definitely there. And what I was doing was just talking about putting those stories, those narratives that I had with early drawings, such as the Tower series Mm. and giving them, giving them life, essentially, and
3: starting to give them a backstory or at least a hint of a backstory.
1: Mm.
0: Yeah, but the, but the inspirations are, are definitely
1: there and not Hmm. One aspect of uh, The Future is Big that actually shows kind of a sea change in your work is the style of, uh, or rather the the type of image that you're creating. That having seen your highly detailed drawings in your previous prints, these are much simple is the wrong word, Um, I guess, less cluttered um, images where you're using kind of much bolder, larger images with colour as well, which is a change. Yes. I mean, I suppose out of the collection, the one that feels like a kind of a segue between your old style and the style that you're using for the exhibition is something like uh, Darling, Can We Go Back? where it still has a detailed image of a city, but it's starting to to metamorphose into these simpler images that you might find on book covers?
0: Yeah, 100%. It was trying to find a bridge between the work that I'd done before and the stories that I wanted to tell or the the hints of the stories that I wanted to tell. Mm. Another one that forms that bridge is Notes from a Troubled Rock, which actually is one of the towers from the Tower series. You know, I'm actually saying... Quite specifically, this is the backstory behind this tower. Mm. So yeah. Also, I should say that the title of the exhibition, it's the future was
3: big, mm. rather than is big. And what I was saying in that is that it is a
0: hark back to the, the this kind of golden age of fantasy in the late seventies and early eighties in science fiction book covers,
1: mm. which does not seem to be you know we talk about the future in a different way now mm. but this is talking about
3: when the future was big
0: mm. and, and and those inspirations yeah
1: and absolutely for anyone who kind of grew up in the the last few decades the 20th century we all read and watched science fiction that suggested a future that was full of interplanetary exploration and jetpacks. And while the technology we have in the modern day is amazing with what we can do with a mobile phone or, you know, Uber or uh, an iPad or whatever, it isn't the kind of fantastical future that we were promised. So it's almost you're commenting on nostalgia for the future that we never had.
0: Mm, and And that future being about scale and grandiose... Yeah, some, something magnificent. And like you said, yeah, the future that we do have is magnificent, but it's, it's less bombastic, it's more nuanced, it's more um, about how it affects our day-to-day lives, I suppose.
1: Yeah. The exhibition is in collaboration with a number of different people. It's curated by Liat Chen. Other collaborators include um, poet and author Dan Fraser, writer and yes. academic Katie Bezik how did you work with these other people in order to kind of create and collect the images that we see so the images were all created by me
3: Mm. i
0: was the starting point but i certainly with regards to leah um, she was fantastic in directing me and telling me what would work in this space because this was the first time that i really work was such a large space mm. uh, and you know it's a very social space as well so I can't just be thinking about what excites me I need to think about what works on a large scale and, and, and what people can digest in such a space so that's why I think you see the images being less cluttered and more to the point mm. I understood what gets people excited about my work what are the key bullet points that I want to say in my images. And so I'm certainly a lot, I've been a lot more concise in these works. And then with regards to the writers, Dan and, and Kate, I'm not a writer and I've always found it difficult to have any sort of story arc in my work. I just think of a setting. Mm. And I was just curious to speak to these individuals and see if they could, one, add a certain... Uh, linguistic skill and flair mm. um, to some of the taglines particularly and also just kind of add in I don't know their thoughts and run with the idea and fortunately they were all they understood what I wanted to do and they took it to you know they added aspects that
3: I couldn't have done myself mm. for example with one careless owner. That was a tagline written by
0: Dan. Mm. And one Keller's owner, I'll just read it. The tagline is, planet for sale, seven ice ages, <laughs>
3: four world wars, one nuclear winter, any
0: takers. <laughs> and I just, I, it's just so concise. It's, it's just amazing mm. um, how he, that, that he had done that. So yeah, I've, 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 I haven't worked on that many collaborations and I think one needs to be very careful who and why when they talk about doing collaboration. but those were um, those were really lovely chances
1: mm. that I had with them. Mm. yeah. And hopefully when people visit the exhibition, they do you know kind of study your work and and become absorbed by it. But actually a nice aspect of having the work, in a public space where people are just using it as a cafe and, you know, a space where they can check their phones or chat with friends or have a coffee or whatever, is that yes. when I visited and took photos of the work on the walls of the place and just people sitting in front of it, the fact that they seemed oblivious to the work around them also <laughs> seems in dialogue with, with some of the pieces themselves where you have kind of characters who are just in a ruined landscape and aren't sort of paying attention to the kind of monuments that they're surrounded by
0: yeah that's interesting but i guess i'm i'm not overly surprised um, (laughs) That i think i think these works are a little bit demanding Mm. of of the context and the people in them because it does kind of it does each one does ask you to read at least the title and the tagline and and ponder it yeah i appreciate that people aren't always in that frame of mind when they go for a coffee or something social like that but that that sounds like an interesting um little snapshot
1: that you got well also because in the exhibition it's not only the framed kind of pseudo-book covers, but also images that look like they've been painted directly onto the wall, or at least in a way that picks up the texture of the wall behind them, such as a cat climbing up the rigging of what looks like might be um, a space shuttle or a ruined uh, robot or something. So that also kind of gives that quality of looking through a window into a landscape beyond.
0: Yeah, so those murals were... Some of them, it was it was some and some. Some were their own book covers that um, we did paint onto the walls, mm. and some of them were little snapshots of some of the books that you see framed as mm. prints. And I think the one you're referring to about the cat up the scaffolding is taken from "Machinations of a Lonely Wonder," okay. uh, which is about imagining what happens to a statue when it outlives the regime that built it and tries to imagine that the spirit and the symbolism that was poured into that statue, perhaps by a
5: totalitarian state, needs to go somewhere. Mm. And so it's, it, yeah,
3: it's, it's the
0: ghost of, of an old regime which was inspired by going to the, I forgot what it's called, but it's essentially a statue of all the, a, a park of all the forgotten statues, Mm. from um, russia's or the soviet union's government in uh, uh, hungary so it's a park that you can visit in budapest,
1: also mm. budapest inspired that one yeah nice and working in a space like the book club where there are sort of circular holes in walls that you can see through doorways that separate different parts of the cafe to one another it actually has a kind of feeling of a landscape to it, which again feels like it's something that works in dialogue with some of your prints. For example, seeing the space in the tower that's in Notes from a Troubled Rock, that's right next to a kind of oval cut in the wall that lets you see the space beyond. So it works really well uh, yeah. in the location. Yeah, I hadn't
0: thought of that. I'm glad you think it works well. I think <laughs> one of the the artworks which because there's so many spaces and there's so many little pockets to the venue, one that um, that maybe doesn't get as much of a look in is Leica. Mm. Did you see that one?
1: Yeah, from outside, which was also quite yeah. like that, you know.
0: Yeah, that's. I think that's definitely one that I would like to expand upon. For those that haven't seen it, it's about Leica, mm. the dog, the first dog in space. that the The tagline reads, which is a fairly concise explanation of the story. It reads, Australian Moscow, a sacrifice in orbit, <laughs> a queen on Mars. <laughs> so that's, yeah, about, again, huge statue of a dog, which has become this deity on Mars, and then has this pilgrimage of Martians that travel from all corners of the planet to visit it. Mm. Uh, whether the dog is still alive in this story, I don't know, I'm not sure it's relevant, but it's certainly one that um, is kind of growing in my head at the moment
1: (laughs) great okay i think that'll do nicely thank you so much alex i mean yeah i should also just just say
0: thank you to all of the people that worked on that particularly uh batten who's who runs the art of ping pong who actually secured me that exhibition i don't give enough props to him (laughs) Hugely grateful to him and then everyone else i worked with on that
1: yeah you can buy prints of toby melville brown's work by going to tobymelvillebrown.bigcartel.com And for more information about the book club, where Toby's exhibition, The Future Was Big, is on display until the 16th of February, please go to wertbc.com Also in London, throughout the rest of the month, there are various events taking place at the capital's architectural institutions. At Reba on Portland Place, their exhibitions, Beyond Bauhaus, Modernism in Britain, 1933-1966, to and Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, Between the New Vision and Bauhaus, are both on at Reba until the 1st of February. There is a curator introduction to the Beyond Bauhaus exhibition on the 21st of January. And also on the 21st of January, there's a talk on pioneering women in collaboration with the campaign group Part W – which celebrates the work of overlooked female contributors to British culture and the modernist movement. On the 25th of January, there's a workshop for blind and partially sighted people so they can enjoy the Bauhaus exhibition. And on the 28th of January, there are a pair of talks at REBA, one with Mike Allthorpe and Abigail Batchelor talking about their research into experimental low-cost housing. And then there's the REBA and VITRA talk, Dorte Mandrop, who will be talking about the award-winning Copenhagen-based practice. For more information about all RIBA exhibitions and events, please go to architecture.com. At the Architecture Association on Bedford Square, they have various lectures that the public are invited to attend, including Huda Teop talking about race, space, and architecture on the 16th of January. Martin Evans will be in Conversation with Ryan ney and Christina Agurillos, and that's taking place on the 21st of January. On Monday the 27th, Tanya Seams and Theo Lorenz will be talking about participatory performance and after-effect in architecture. And then on Thursday the 30th of January, Ahmed and Rashid bin Shabib will be talking about the creation of Dubai's first man-made island. You can find more information about all Architecture Association events by going to aaschool.ac.uk. At the Architecture Foundation, which is part of the Royal College of Art on Kensington Gore, their series of talks, Architecture on Stage, continues on the twenty-third of January, in which Conan Sigel Architecten will be coming from Switzerland to talk about their design and practice. On the third of February, Italian architect Francesca Torzo We'll be talking about their global work, including on Belgium's Z33 museum in Hazelt. And then on the 7th of February, Stephen Taylor, a highly regarded British architect, will be there talking about his practice. As well as these talks, there are various film screenings at the Architecture Foundation, including on the 20th of January, a new 4K restoration of Fellini's Roma. For more information about all Architecture Foundation events, please go to architecturefoundation.org.uk. Architecture Culture was presented, edited, and produced by Alex Fitch and is a Panel Borders production. Next month we'll be joined by Nathan Cattucci talking about his psychological thriller Impossible Monsters, which presents an interesting look at the architecture of New York as an artist is pursued by a serial killer, while interacting with the psychology department at the local university. You can find all previous episodes of Architecture Culture at www.panelborders.wordpress.com and we'll be back at the same time on the third Wednesday in February. Thanks for listening.
0: This program has been brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. If you liked what you heard and want to support our work, please make a donation at fundraiser.resonance.fm.